ago when I was living in China, working in China, I was invited by a group of pastors to visit some elder pastors in the region. And the pastors who invited me were all about my age. And so we went to this meeting, and there were about 10, 11 people in the room, and uh, most of them were senior uh, in age, but they're all pastors. And there were some discussions on some matters of great importance. So we all sat down, and I being a visitor, an outsider, and I just thought it was wise if I keep my mouth um, completely shut. And um, so the whole meeting went on. And the people that invited me, these other pastors, they also were very quiet throughout the whole meeting. And the older people were the people that were um, doing the most of the talking. So when the meeting was finished, after a few hours, we went back. And in the car, I asked the two pastors, I said to him, uh, to them, I said, this is such an important matter, and why didn't you two speak up? You know, and... Um, and their response to me caught me by surprise. And they says, you know, we are so young. And we don't have much experience or knowledge. We have so much to learn. So it is better for us not to speak on the subject that we don't know about. And in many ways tonight, I feel like the two pastors standing before you addressing the issues of what I call the third, the third table. But I do have a big burden in my heart as I stand before you. And my burden is this, that we as a body of Christ, people from different nations, different countries, different cultural background, and uh, people from different parts of the world, that we will come together to create a new context, a new environment, a new table, if you will, for us to come around with Jesus at the head. And we sit together as equal partners for the sake of of global mission. We are already aware there is a Western table where the Western churches have for the past few centuries gotten together, collaborated together, and they had very successful transplanted Christianity to the rest of the world. And if you were here this morning and you see the, how the Western churches were able to... to um, give birth to many churches around the world. And uh, the reason that I stand before you as a child of God was the effort of many missionaries that came to Singapore and invested their time and sacrificially uh, work in the area so that people like us from our part of the world will, have, will receive the gospel and come to faith in God. And now this group has grown up, these young people from the, from the non-West country, and the, lead, the leaders in, this part, in the Global South, or Global South is usually referred to as the people from the non-West. And so the churches in the Global South are today mature and they're equally dedicated in wanting to bring the gospel to the rest of the world. And if we are not careful, if we do not take seriously the, challenge, the challenges before us, if we do not learn from the lessons of history, Westerners will continue to congregate around the table and the church in the global south will continue to congregate around their table, their own table. And the unity with, which is prayed for by Jesus for his global church so that the world may believe will go unrealized. The prayer of Christ in John chapter 17 will not be realized if the body of Christ 
do not work together in unity. And um, I'm proposing, you know, what we need then is a new third table, which does not belong to the West or to the non-West, but to all of those in the body of Christ who are dedicated to missions of impacting the world with the glorious good news of the gospel. Paul Brothwick, in his book, Western Christian in Global Mission, he said this, The growth of the global church is not a confirmation of the decline of the North American church, but of the rise of everybody else. Recipients are now senders. Countries in Asia, in Africa, in South America, in the Middle East were once recipients of the gospel from the West. They are today's senders of missionaries into the world. And those who were once solely a mission field have become a mission force. Look at Korea. Just a hundred years ago, there were very few Christians in Korea. And today, Korea is one of the largest missionary sending countries in the world. And the movement of peoples around the world has blurred the lines between the senders and the mission field. And the movement, uh, and continuing the, um, this thinking, um, a, a prolific political writer from Pakistani background, I don't think he's a Christian, um, his name is Farid Zakaria, he, uh, he writes for Time magazines and Newsweek and also appears in CNN. And he wrote a book called Living in the Post-American World. And from the political perspective, he is saying that with the rise of everybody else, Washington needs to begin the serious transformation of its global strategy, moving from its traditional role of dominating hegemon to that of a more pragmatic, honest broker. It must learn to share power in the new world, create coalition, build legitimacy, and define the global agenda. All are formidable tasks. And if I can continue the parallel thinking of Farid Zakaria and apply them into uh, his, his observation into world mission, I would say that the North American mission movement, and that includes the European as well, needs a dramatic transformation of our global strategy. Rather than seeing ourselves as brokers working from the posture of power, we need to start seeing ourselves as servants in the global church. We need to learn how to share power. Yes, but more realistically, we need to learn to release power. We still have a posture from which we can at times build coalition, but we also need to learn to join coalitions that we did not initiate. We need to join God's global agenda rather trying to define God's agenda. In short, we need to learn how to participate from a platform of servanthood rather than from power. In many ways, what they, these two authors said about the North American churches also apply to European churches as well. And it is a great temptation for non-Western church. And I've heard this from many pastors that I talk to in Asia, now that I'm based in Asia. And many of these pastors will tell me that it is too much work, too much energy, and too tiring to work with a Western church in the whole area of world evangelization. And some pastor that said to me, said, we have the resources. Our people are vibrant. They are young. 
They are energetic. And we have a passport that is accessible to many countries. Since we want to start our own mission group. And we want to do our own thing. And brothers and sisters, this thinking is not of the Lord. It is not of the Lord. When churches begin to think that they can operate independently of other churches and other body of Christ, this thinking is dangerous. Because Jesus, um, the, the devil's tactic in John chapter 10, verse 10 says, He come to seek and to, 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 to destroy. And if the church is to be separated and try to work independent of the others, they cannot stand alone. The church needs one another. And, um, and we must not listen to, what, to such a thinking. But in fact, we must do exactly the opposite by striving to work together around a third table. Now, in order to guide and stimulate our thinking uh, in this area, I want to offer the following thoughts as a basis for creating an environment conducive for constructing what I'm referring to as the third table. And this is my term, I coined it, and I want to continue to work hard in pushing this. And I have some um, PowerPoint to help me along this. We want to look at it from the historical perspective. And um, if we could have the next slide. You know, this is a picture, I'm sorry if you cannot see it clearly. And it is the, the um, what do you call, it shows the change in the statistical center of Christianity throughout um, the centuries. It started in Jerusalem, and then it moved northwards, and then it went, kept going north and then to Europe. And for several hundred years, it stayed on in the European area. And then in, 19, in the 1900s, the turn of the 20th century in Madrid, and then it came down. And in 1970, for the first time since the Reformation, the statistical center for Christianity, that, is, that means it is the place where they count the Christian growth, has moved southwards and eastwards. And it is now in Timbatu, in the Mali, Africa. And I just wonder what the people of Timbatu would think if they realize that their place is the statistical center for Christianity. It is the place where they count Christians. Then the next slide shows that over the centuries, in the 1900s, the top 10 countries, top 9 countries, with the most Christian population, come from Western countries in Europe and America. And then 50 years after 1900, you see that it went on again, and um, some countries from the global south, like Brazil and Mexico, began to climb up to be among the top 10 countries with the most Christian population. And then by the year 2000, we see that almost half of the top 10 countries are people from the non-West countries. And according to this projection, by the year 2050, only 35 years from now, Nine out of the ten countries in the world with the most Christian populations will be people that come from the non-West countries. So historically, we are seeing that all this are taking place, this growth, and, um, and the Global South churches. And I want to show you the next slides, which I shared a little bit this morning. And that is also the percentage of missionaries, where they come from in 1900. 
only 8% of the missionaries in the world come from places that are considered global south, non-west country. And today, 57% of the missionaries in the world come from people from non-traditional missionary sending countries. You see the growth and the projection of the, the, the growth of the churches in the global south. Now, with this picture, I just want to clarify one thing, I'll qualify one thing. The pink represents the European missionary force, the darker pink represents the North American missionary force, and the yellow represents missionaries from Asia. Now, towards 2040, you will see the percentage of the the European missionaries have shrunk to a very small percentage. That does not mean they are, not, they are sending less missionaries. The missionary force from Europe could still be the same amount, if not more, than what they have today. It, it is just that in comparison to the rest of the missionary force, they become a small number because of the sheer size of the uh, Christian populations in the Global South region. China, for example, has about 20 to 30,000 missionaries today, but they all, many of them are working inside China. And, um, and um, their goal is to raise 100,000 missionaries in the next few years. Korea has about 9,000 missionaries serving around the world. So we are looking at the, from the historical perspective we cannot deny, it is undeniable that the churches from the global south, from the majority world, is growing to be a formidable force. And they are sending out missionaries. Now the next um, perspective that I want to look at is from the biblical perspective. And uh, Paul has some very important things to say about this. And we just read from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 13. And... Um, and I want to ask you all, you know, how does this passage relate to you? You know, Ephesians chapter 4. And, um, and I want to just uh, take a quote uh, from a missiology called Charles Van Ingen, a professor of mission theology, and in his article, Toward a Theology of Mission Partnership, he provides an answer. And there's a scene here. I just read to you, and I want to just unpack this for you in a, in a while. He says, "Because of our oneness is centered, because our oneness is centered in Christ, in Jesus Christ, we are called to partner together for world evangelization, serving one another in love and humility. As we participate in Christ's mission, offering to one another the unique gifts given by the Holy Spirit to our various regional and global organizations and churches so that we may equip the saints for the work of ministry until we all together grow up into the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And um, if I could just unpack it and put it into four categories, the motivation for mission partnership, according to Charles Ingen, the motivation for partnership, you know, why do we do it? And the reason we do it is because, first and foremost, together we belong to Jesus Christ. Paul says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of us all, who is above all and through all and in all. 
Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 to 6. And the motivations for our partnership in mission is simply because, first and foremost, together we belong to Jesus Christ. And then he said, the second area is the agency for partnership. The agencies is the way the body of Christ expresses unity and works together in missions. And this involves a special set of attitudes. Paul writes, Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And our attitude involves, our, our agency involves a special set of attitudes. Now, the means for mission partnership, and this refers to the way we look at each other in the global church. And it says here, we should see them, as Paul says, in terms of each other being given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. Indeed, each member of the global church has been uniquely gifted by Christ to fulfill his purposes. As such, it grieves the Holy Spirit when one part of the body believes it has no use for the other part. So the means of missions in partnership is that we see one another as a, as a part of a family. And then the fourthly, the goals of our mission partnership. You know, what is our goal? What is the result that we are looking for? And the result of our unity in Christ is to equip the saints for the work of ministry until all of us come to maturity to the measure of the full stature of Christ. So here we see the motivation behind the partnership and then we also see the agency for our partnership. We also see the means for our partnership and then we also see the goals of our partnership. And... Um, then from there, the, from the biblical perspective, we want to move to the theological perspective. And um, the image of the growing stature of Christ is picked up and expanded upon by one renowned mission historian, one of the greatest missiologists of our time, and he is Andrew Walls, honorary professor at the University of Edinburgh. And what he says in relation to the Ephesians moment using the metaphor of temple and the body and in Ephesians has particular, particular applications to our discussions. And, um, and for me, I think in an attempt to, to, to present the genius of his argument, I've decided that I'm going to quote him directly. And that will save me the effort to try to explain to you. And this is his original thought and I thought it was brilliant. And he's, this is what he said about the efficient moment um, taken from his book, The Cross-Cultural Process of Christian History. And um, this is what he says. The Christian story is a serial. It comes, its it center moves from place to place. No one church or place or culture owns it. At different times, different people and places have become its heartlands. Its chief representatives, then the baton passes on to others. 
One of the reasons why many mission organizations have moved the head office to Singapore and to some parts of Asia is simply because the center for Christian influence has shifted out of Europe and it is now in the global east. And Andrew Walls continued to say, when Ephesians was written, there were only two major cultures represented in the Christian church, the Jewish culture and the Hellenistic culture. And they could easily have formed separate churches. But that thought does not occur to the author. Two races and two cultures, historically separated by the mule tables, now met at the table to share the knowledge of Christ. That is the efficient moment. But the efficient moment, the social coming together of people of two cultures to experience Christ, was quite brief. The church was dispersed. But in our own day, today, today, the efficient moment has come again and has come in a richer mode than has ever happened since the first century. Like the old Jerusalem Christians, Western Christians had long grown used to the idea that they were guardians of a standard Christianity. Although like them, they find themselves in the presence of new expressions of Christianity and new Christian lifestyles that have developed or are, develop, or are developing under the guidance of the Holy Spirit to displace Christ under the conditions of African, Indian, Chinese, Korean, and Latin American life. The church of Jesus Christ is rich in its diversity and in its culture. Then he, lastly, he said, the efficient metaphors of the temple of the body show each of the culture specific segments as necessary to the body, but as incomplete in itself. Only in Christ does completion, fullness dwell. And Christ's completion, as we have seen, comes from all humanity, from the translations of the life of Jesus into the life ways of all the world's culture and subcultures through history. None of us can reach Christ's completeness on our own. We need each other's vision to correct, to enlarge, and focus our own. And only together we are complete in Christ. Please don't miss what I'm saying. The efficient moment is upon us as Christian faith is being transferred from one nation to another. From one culture to another and each of which is necessary for the global church to grow up into the full stature of Christ. To explain what I mean with regards to global mission, you know, Western Christians can inform us of their experience and, um, and, their, and their expertise in missions, both positive and negative. And then the Latin American Christians, I spend almost 10 years of my life in Latin America and I love that part of the world and Latin American Christians can tell us more about the power of the Holy Spirit in the life and witnesses of the church then African Christians can reveal to us about the communal aspects of, their, of our faith and Asian Christians can teach us about the challenges related to suffering and persecutions in oppressive contexts and what I'm saying uh, is going to be depicted in the following slide. And this is my little attempt of what I call the third table. That we gather around a new environment, a new context, 
And with Jesus Christ as the head, and the word of God as the foundation, and Christians from many different cultures and countries, Latins, Africans, Asians, Western European, North Americans, all coming together as equal partner, as one body in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we plan, we scheme, and we work together as equal partners to reach the world for our Lord Jesus Christ. This is an ideal table. The global church has not arrived at this place where each church-specific contribution and insights are equally valued, appreciated, and heeded. But I'm praying that we will work toward this ideal as we join heads, hands, and hearts together. And I am committed as I lead OM in this direction. We have a movement now with people coming from 98 different countries. And, uh, and I am determined to work together to bring OM into this direction so that we all can come around a new environment as equal partners with Jesus as the head of the table and we plan and serve him to reach the world with the Lord Jesus Christ. The fourth area that I want to present to you is the cultural perspective. The f- cultural perspective. I shared about this earlier this morning. This is now one of the most, what do you call, culture is arguably one of the most thorny issues when working together in global mission. Ethnocentrism is the key factor. Ethnocentrism is the notion that my culture is more superior than your culture, that I'm better than you. And this is a presumption somehow um, that is... um, Existing in the world. And the, the, the sad and undeniable uh, fact is that our cultural diversity, instead of being a blessing to one another, oftentimes become an irritation and an impediment in some cases. just want to show you this um, Lewis model. Uh, it talks about people coming from three different groups. The, the, um, on the top of the triangle is the multi-reactive group. Multi, sorry, multi-active group, and then the blue corner on the left-hand side is the lineal active group, and then the yellow co- um, triangle on the right-hand side is the reactive group. And let me try to explain to you. The lineal active people are those who plan, they have a schedule, they have a time frame, they are very good in organizing things, they pursue action change, and they do one thing at a time. They don't usually multitask. They tend to be cool. They're very factual and emotional sometimes. Decisive planners. The Germans and the Swiss are in this group. And, um, and you can look at this triangle and you try to place yourself where you belong in the triangle. The multi-actives group. Those lively, vivacious people who do many things at once. Planning their priorities not according to a timetable but according to the relative thrill or the importance that each appointment brings with it. They change their mind. They go where the, where the party is. They tend to be warm. They're emotional. They're impulsive. They're talkative. Italians, Latin Americans, and Arabs are members of this group. The reactive people, those who prioritize courtesy and respect, listening quietly and calmly to their interlocutors, 
and reacting carefully to the other side's proposal. They tend to be curious, they're amiable, accommodating, they're good listeners, the Chinese, the Japanese, and the Finns are people from this group. And if you want to, in the next slides, I just put on more example, people from the linear active and multi-active and reactive. And I can make this available to you for some of you who are interested in how people do things. And it is important for us. It is important for us, for people that come from different cultural backgrounds, need to learn to appreciate one another and have a better, uh, what do you call, CQ, cultural quotient and cultural intelligence so that we are able to appreciate one another and work together. Now, culture is a major thing. Um, a few years ago, again, back to my China story, I had American friends that came to visit me and spent a few days with me at our welfare center. We had a farm, and, um, and uh, the people, we, we cooked food, and then we would eat. And I know this particular friend from the college days. He is careful with food. And I mean, the only thing that pleases him is hamburger. And anything outside of hamburger is outside of his comfort zone. And so he came to China. And I decided, and he told me, he says, is it true, Lawrence, is it true that if I, if I eat with these people and if I refuse the food, it is offensive to the Chinese culture? I said, oh yeah, very offensive. You've got to eat everything that is on your table and everything that is on your plate. And so he took that seriously. And then we were sitting there. And on our first meal together, the host just grabbed a full frog. A frog. It's not just the leg. It's the head, the body, and the legs. And they grabbed this with a chopstick and put it on my friend's plate. <laughs> and I could see the shock in his eyes. I mean, he went pale. And, I, and he sat there. And... Um, and he started to nibble on the whole thing. And finally, he managed to eat some of the frogs. And then as a good American friend, he didn't want to offend the host. So he kept eating other food. And finally, he finished all that was on his plate. And the host was so happy. He saw that this guy liked his cooking. So he grabbed another frog <laughs> and put it on the plate and grabbed more things in there. And my poor friend... And then he tried, and he did, and he finished everything that was on his plate. And then the man grabbed another frog. And I told him, I said, I think this is enough. And, um, but what it is, is that it is a cultural misunderstanding. My friend thought that it was offensive if he would, and rude to the host if he did not eat everything that is on the plate. And then the host felt that it is very rude for him as a host to send a guest to bed with a hungry stomach. So every time he finished a plate, that means he's hungry. So we've got to give him more food. And um, again, common sense tells us that when you're full, you just tell the host, nice piece, I'm full, and I wouldn't eat again. And, um, but in our cultural quotient, it's important for us to work together, understanding and appreciating one another. And my next slide, I just thought I added this in. And this PowerPoint to just show you, you know, some of the way to develop cross-cultural relationships. Our attitudes, you know, if you're a learner, you want to understand the cultural lenses and look for common interests and then take initiative. And um, also we want to see God in the relationships. You know, you want to learn the cultural specifics 
of each culture you interact with. And then you, our affinities is to develop cooperations, projects with other culture groups. And then our action is to share your own culture, keep asking questions. And it is always a learning journey when it comes to working with people from different culture. You know, if you look at the world today, and I shared earlier this morning, there are 240 million people working in countries other than their home countries. The figure was only 2 million um, in 1960s, but now it has grown to 240, and it will continue to grow. China, in its aggressive expansion program, has made agreement with Africa that they will send 15 million workers to Africa alone to build their railway, to build their roads, their highway, their ports, their airports, their school, and their football stadiums. So, and then in return, the Africans are also going to China to study under the Chinese scholarship. So there are many exchange programs, and more and more people are mixing around. And we are seeing now that different cultures are learning to interact together. And therefore, the Church of Jesus Christ ought to do this. And if you were to consider what I present to you, the historical and the biblical and the theological and the cultural aspect of working together as a church, as Christ's church in his global uh, mission, I want to extend a personal invitation to all of you to join me at the third table with Jesus as the head. We cannot afford to allow the Western church to feel threatened that they decided they're going to do the whole thing. And then the Asian or the global south or the non-West church cannot afford to think that they have the, the resources, the people, the energy, and they want to do their own thing. If they start forming their own table, both groups doing their own thing, then the prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ in John chapter 17, that he pray for unity among the church, will go unrealized when the body of Christ do not work together. So I'm pleading to you and to the church and to people in the mission field that we are to set aside. Let's leave our global north table and let's leave our global south table and let's find a new context, a new environment, a new table. And that with Jesus as his head and we as equal partners planning our future and our goal to reach the world together as one body in the Lord. And if we can achieve that, then I believe, I believe that um, this table will bring glory and his glory alone. Let's pray together.